0: Well, good morning. My name is Zach Thompson. I'm on staff here at Calvary Bible Church, but I tend to spend my time on the Thornton campus. But I absolutely love coming and joining you all in worship here on the Boulder campus. Because if there's any people, it sure seems, if there's any people who care more about the Thornton campus than I do, it's felt like it's been this campus. Every time that I'm here, people come up and they, they share about how they were praying about the launch of the Thornton Campus. They want to know what God has been doing in the two and a half years since we've been open, and it's so encouraging to me. You might not get anything out of me being here, but I leave just overjoyed with the love and companionship that you have. The reminder that as we are working in a place that is uh, 30, to an hour, uh, 30 minutes to an hour away from here, as we are out there, Coming here on a Sunday reminds me that we aren't out there alone, that you are with us, you're, you're joining in us, you're celebrating what God is doing there, and that's such a great reminder uh, to, that I get to have whenever I'm out here with you all. So I want to start our time off with with a quote. And if you've been around churches for a a while, you you might have heard it before. It's a fairly famous quote. It comes from a man named A.W. Tozer. He was a theologian, and he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And his point that he's making here is that while we are thinking about God, while we are studying his Bible, while we are studying theology, that's not just some mere mental exercise. It's not to gain facts or, or to think about cool, deep things. There's things that, that happen because of that. What we think about God shapes our understanding of our purpose, shapes our understanding of this world. It, it impacts how, then, we live. And if that's true, there, there's a natural implication that comes from that. A, a follow-up question what comes into your mind when you think about God? What's the image that you have of him? What is the picture that comes to your mind when you think about what God is like? Now, there's been a variety of pictures that I've had about God in in different seasons of my life or at different moments even. One of those pictures that, that I've had, maybe you've had this as well, is thinking about God as a sort of police officer, Maybe you have that moment where you're driving, and even if you've never, you're not doing anything wrong, I would, I would never accuse you of breaking any laws. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you know that feeling you get when you look into the rearview mirror and you see a police car behind you. Your stomach drops a little bit. Your hands grip the steering wheel. My hands have never been more accurate to 10 and 2 in those moments. Your eyes glance over to the speedometer, just to double check, just to make sure. You're doing everything right. Maybe even get over to a different lane to see if they follow you or not, to see if they drive past you, then you have that big breath of relief, or if they follow you into that lane as well. Oh no, they've come for me. And if we start to view God in that sort of lens where where we see that he says what is right and wrong, and then we just anticipate that he spends the rest of his time looking out for wrongdoing, looking to see where we fall short of a standard, And if God is like that for us, maybe we walk in the church and our stomach drops a little bit. So we're reading his Bible, we're doing so while looking at the speedometer, looking over our life to see, is there a place, is there a place where I'm falling short? Is he coming for me? Maybe the way that we picture God is that of a police officer just looking to punish any wrongdoing. Or maybe we have a different image of God, that we read all throughout the Bible of of his generosity, his goodness, We sing songs about his love and his care and grace and mercy. And then we look out into the world and we see disasters and horrific occurrences and and, uh, shortcomings and and failures. And it's hard to make those things line up. So the picture we have of God, we we see this this kindly man, maybe, maybe even this smiling older gentleman. But he's just too frail to do anything about what he sees. I mean, he's, he's so loving and looks like he would, would want to help if he could, but, but maybe there's just nothing that he's able to do. And if God is that picture for us, we start to treat God like that. We will spend time with him, maybe, on occasion, normally when we need something, when we want to make sure that our future is secure. My, na- my name's still written down, right? I'm still in your book. I'm, I'm still going to get what's coming to me, aren't I? Maybe we'll spend time with him around the holidays you know, Christmas, Easter, that sort of thing. Maybe our picture of God is of this very loving, kindly, frail old man. Or it could be a different picture. We know God's powerful. We know he can accomplish everything. We know he is working now. It just, it doesn't always make sense as to why he works or when he works. So God starts to look a bit like a slot machine. We come with our cup of change and we insert coin after coin, prayer after prayer, hoping that this is the time that it pays out. Or maybe God is like Santa. We come with our list of of what we would like and and now we're just waiting to see what do we get. Of course, being naughty or nice might impact our chances. What is the image that comes into your mind when you think about God? Now I'll confess, I've had all of those images. I would never say that the Bible teaches God is like that. It clearly doesn't, but in my experience of him and and trying to make sense of this world around it, those images start to creep in and they start to shape how I interact with God. Maybe you've had moments where those images come in or maybe it's not moments. That those are the only pictures that you've had to relate to this God. That there's no, no other option that you've seen of how are we to understand this God? And that's why we're doing this series that we've called This We Believe, where we are looking at what are the core truths, what are the foundational pieces that we hold to as a church that we say are true. And when we're doing this series for a variety of reasons, one, we always want to be centered on what the Bible says. As we're looking over our statement of faith, these, these truths that we believe in, we, we don't say that that is the Bible. We, we hold the Bible with all reverence, with all authority. What our statement of faith is, we think it's a summary of what the Bible says. So we're doing this series to remind ourselves, what does the Bible say is true? And we want to be united around that. The second reason is, it, it's so much more difficult to be blown off course when we are anchored to truth. And the third reason for this series is, well, it's what Tozer says. What we think about God impacts how we live. And what we see to be true about God from the Bible, the image that's conveyed in our statement of faith, well, it's greater than any image of God that we might come up with on our own. Because this is what we say we believe about God in our statement of faith. It says, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Father, The Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. Now, this does not say everything that's true about God, but we think that this says what is true about God as we find from the Bible. The other part of that, though, I'm not able to say everything about what's written in this statement in our time together. I I hope you recognize how incredible it is that you get to sit under the teaching of Tom and John and Perry. They're all so terrific at at synthesizing biblical truth of showing its application to life and, and to do so in a really succinct way. My gifts are more taking a really simple idea and making it murky and last longer than it needs to last. Have I mentioned how glad I am to be out here with you all? It's going to be so much fun. So I can't say everything about this statement, and so what I want to do with our time is just draw our attention to a few key points. If someone was to come up to me and say, uh, describe God in one word, the one word that I would use would be, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds arbitrary and and limiting. But if I was in a more agreeable state and I was to do that, probably the, the one word that is most important to get about God is the word, infinite. God is infinite. And we see that in our statement. It says that God is infinitely perfect. And I think of Habakkuk 1.12 on this. It says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Are you not from everlasting? Are you not eternal? Are you not infinite? It's hard for us to understand, to to wrap our minds around something that is infinite. It's hard for us to grasp infinity. And a big part of that is, well, we are not infinite. We very much so would be finite. There is a set number, a fixed number about every part of us. There are a set number of days that you and I will live. There is a set number of, of parts that make up who we are. There's a set number of molecules that make up each of those different parts. Every part of us is finite. It is countable. Maybe not physically countable, we don't have that technology, but every part of us is set in number. God, however, is infinite. It's hard for us to picture what something is that is infinite. Even as we imagine the biggest thing that we can, the most numerous thing that we can, it still fails to do justice to the concept of infinity. Think about being on a beach, for example. And you're out there, you're enjoying your time in the sun, you look to your right, and you just see shoreline going on for miles and miles and miles. And you look to your left, and there's the same thing. The beach just extends for miles and miles and miles, and it's covered with this luxurious, beautiful sand. How many grains of sand are on that beach? And you could spend your whole lifetime just counting how many grains of sand there are there and not even make a dent into the shoreline. You could spend another lifetime, and another one, and another one, and another one, and still not even get close to how many grains of sand there are on that beach. And yet when we say God is infinite, he's not only more than the amount of sand on that beach, he is infinitely more. You could spend every single lifetime still not come close to counting God's infinity. Think of something else that's that's just massive in number. Uh, How many trees? are on the Rocky Mountains. It's this massive number of trees, and yet God is not only bigger than that, he is infinitely bigger than that. What's another massive number? The amount of money that Russell Wilson was paid to lead a five and 12 team this past season. God is not only more than that number, he's infinitely more. And it's not just that God is infinite in, in time. But because he is infinite, his nature is infinite, all that he is, all that God does is infinite. So Psalm 147, throwing stuff. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. You cannot count his understanding. It is infinite. So God knows all things. The word that we might use to describe that, we would say that God is omniscient. He knows all. He is infinite in knowledge and understanding. Ephesians 3.20 says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, far more infinitely than all we can ask or even think according to the power at work within us. God is infinite in, in power and ability We would say that God is omnipotent, that he is able to do all that he sets out to accomplish with all power. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, it says, Am I I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Aren't I near to you? Aren't I close? 24, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill? completely heaven and earth declares the lord god is infinite in space The, the the word that we would say is he's omnipresent there is not a place where god is not or to put that positively god is infinitely in all places at all times in all spaces As we talk about the attributes of God, what it is that he does, what it is that he is, it would be true, since God is infinite, that all of these attributes that we talk about him would be infinite as well. So when 1 John 4, 8 says God is love, that tells us that God is infinitely love. He does not run out of love. He does not stop loving. There isn't a time where he isn't being love. He is infinite love. When we say God is good, he's infinitely good. When we say God is just, he's infinitely just. He's infinitely sovereign. He's infinitely wise. Now, we're, we're talking a lot about how God is infinite, and we've, we've said it's hard for us to understand what that means, but it's important that we, that we at least see that this is what the Bible is teaching us because there's implications that come out of this. Because we have a God who's infinite, there are things that that means. A a theologian named Matthew Barrett wrote a book called None Greater, and he gives this kind of one-sentence definition of God. It's kind of the thesis of his book. He says, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. And so what it means that God is infinite, it means that there is nothing that is beyond his capacity or capabilities, that there is no one who can ever come and beat him or best him in anything that there's not, a part, uh, there's not an aspect of him, an attribute, or him himself that becomes exhausted or expires. And so let's play on that just a little bit. There's never a moment where God turns off or runs out a part of himself. Let, let me try to explain this. Uh, my emotions, my reactions, how I respond to different things, it seems like I operate uh, by a bunch of various switches. So when I'm at church, because I I love the people that I'm around on Sunday, because it's so honoring to think that God might work through me, and because, well, I don't want to lose my job, uh, in those moments, I tend to operate with a lot of kindness and patience and gentleness towards the people that I come across. But as I'm driving home and someone cuts me off, those switches seem to get turned off as my anger switch is turned on instead. It's much more difficult for me to be kind or patient or gentle to this jerk who needs to look where he's going. It seems like as one switch goes on, others go off, and it's hard for me to act in different ways depending on how I'm responding to different things. But God is not like that. There's never a time that he turns off part of himself because he's infinite. There's never a time that he runs out of energy or ability because he's infinite. So when we say God is love, he's always acting out of his love. We might say, oh, God's not loving to me, but that's never going to be true. We might not feel that to be the case, but God is always loving. God is always just. God is always powerful, always present. Because he is infinite, he is infinite in all he is and all he does. There's never a time that he runs out or expires or anything about that. But as we're talking about these different parts or pieces, it may sound like, uh, as we're talking about these different attributes of God, it may sound like he has different parts or pieces. Like if I was to describe myself, I am someone who's made up of a bunch of various parts. I have legs and arms and a head. I like to read. I like to watch movies and soccer and hockey. And yet none of those things make up who I am entirely. It's, It's the whole that you need to look at. If you were trying to describe oh, who was it that preached uh, th- this past Sunday, uh, you know, it's, it's the pastor with arms. It doesn't really do a good job of, of saying who it is that, that I am or, or distinguishing that. And we may start to think that God is like that. As we talk about these different attributes, well, if we add them all up, that's God. That's not what's true. Instead, we see that God is whole, God is complete, God is one. And we see that in our statement as well, right at the beginning. It says that we believe in one God. Now, there's a couple ways that we can read this. We can read it quite simply. Okay, that tells us that we don't believe in two gods, or three, or a gazillion gods. It tells us that there is one God that we believe in. But it also describes that one God, that he is one, that he's not made up of parts or pieces, He cannot be divided or separated. He can't be broken up into parts. He is one, whole, complete. that gets us to another part of our statement. Last week, Tom was here, and one of his big takeaways that he said is that uh, Jesus is fully God. The week before that, Thomas was here, and one of his main points was the Holy Spirit is fully God. We see all throughout the Bible that those truths are true. And here I am talking about God the Father, and wouldn't you know it, he's fully God. And so as we're doing just, even just a little bit of simple counting, it could be, okay, so the Father's God, Jesus is God, and the Spirit's God. And we look down at our fingers. well, that looks like there's three gods. And yet, overwhelmingly, the Bible is clear that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6 tells us. Jesus, when giving the greatest commandment, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord, the one Lord, the one God with your all. And so what we see, the truth of Scripture is, is that there is one God in three persons that exists in perfect community for an infinite amount of time, infinite in all this one God is that is hard to wrap our minds around. We spend all this time talking about how God is infinite and that's, that's difficult for us to picture. Let alone when we say that God is infinite in all that He is, all that He does. Where, where you and I tire out, God never does. Where you and I are limited to one place, God is not limited in that way. While we are limited to one moment, and I'm sure while I'm talking, it may feel like this moment is going on forever. I can assure you, it is not. While we are limited to one time and place, God is infinite in all that he is. While we are are, uh, at the mercy of our responses and emotions to things, God is always the same. And now to talk about him as this trinity, this tri-unity, One God, but three persons. You don't add them up and they equal one God. No, God is is one. It's hard for us to understand how this God can be like that. It's hard for us to understand what he is like. It's it's hard for us to wrap our minds around him. He is so different. He's so holy. He's so perfect, so pure, so good in all ways. And, And we are not that. His ways are not our ways. And then you add to that the truth about every person, two fundamental truths about every person. We all need this God. We are designed to be with him, that we, in him we find true joy and purpose and fulfillment and direction. But the other truth is no one can draw near to this God. He's too holy. He's too good. He's too perfect. He's too infinite. And we are not those things. So what hope do we have to relate to a God like this? What, what hope do we have to, to know him, to be known by him? How can we possibly relate to a God like this? Well, this is the grace of God. That while we have desperate need of him, he has no need of us, but while we have desperate need of him, he reveals himself to us. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. Uh, just, it, there's no context for this, just a random thought that came into my head. Uh, there's never any shame in using the table of contents at the front of your Bible. If anyone ever makes you feel ashamed for using it, they clearly care more about facts and and details of the Bible than helping people experiencing the life-giving words that are found within. Uh, So Hosea chapter 11, if you remember how to get to the book of Daniel from the series that we were in before, it's the very next book. Or if you're looking it up on your phone, it's the one that's spelled Hosea. So in Hosea chapter 11, uh, uh, or in the book of Hosea, we get this, this very graphic picture of God relating to his people, that he has loved them and cared for them and supported them, and they, like a prostitute, have turned to other things than him. And we, as we get to chapter 11, we, we're coming out of multiple chapters of God's judgment towards his people. You have gone away. You have turned away from the one God, and because God is just, infinitely just, there is judgment that is to be done it may sound like his love is turned off in that moment, that he's not acting out of his love. And yet Hosea chapter 11 is the reminder that he doesn't turn off part of himself. Even in the midst of this judgment, God is infinitely love. How has he revealed himself to us? How can we know and relate to a God this massive, this infinite, this good, this holy? Well, this is how he's revealed himself to his people, to us. Hosea chapter 11. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the, to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is, is used to represent the northern tribes, Israel, before they go off into the exile. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Do you see the picture of God's tenderness here? His love for his people. His love, how he reveals himself to them, is as a father. With all that that means, caring and guiding and loving and correcting. I love the picture that's used. It's of God teaching his children to walk. Maybe you've taught someone to walk or you've seen a child learning to do so. It is an exercise in repeated failure. A step and a fall, a step and a fall, or maybe even a fall before a step. And yet the picture that we have of God is of lifting them up by the arms, the care that comes with that. Learning to walk comes with scrapes and bumps and bruises. God says, I healed you. It comes with need for guidance and correction. I have done that for you. God loves his people like a father. And yet they have turned away. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High God, he shall not raise them up at all. Despite his love for them, like a father loves a child, his people are constantly turning towards other things. And yet God does not turn off his love. As we see that in his response, though you have done that, Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities that were completely destroyed by God's judgment. How can I treat you like that? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Instead, this is what he will do. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come, trembling from the west. And they shall come, trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So how can we know this massive, infinite God? How can we relate to him when he is so different than us? Well, it's because he has chosen to reveal himself and reveal himself as father. It's an idea that we see all throughout the Bible. I think of uh, Isaiah chapter 63. It says, you are our father. Or uh, Psalm 103, it's talking about how God shows compassion on his followers like a father shows compassion to their children. Or Matthew 6, how do we pray, Jesus? We'll start by saying, Our Father. But as we talk about God as Father, it's not some name, it's not some, some mere title that's given to him, it's not some way for us to separate and distinguish between the persons of the Trinity. No, it is given to us specifically. Because God reveals himself with all that a father entails, with all love and care and correction and guidance and encouragement. Now, God knows his people like a father knows their child. Now, I know it's, it's hard when we talk about God the Father to, to separate that from our experiences with earthly fathers. I mean, maybe that's a good thing. As we talk about God the Father, you have pictures of the way that your Father loved you and cared for you and guided you. And so that's easy to think think about God in that way. Others of us didn't have that experience with fathers. So when we talk about the love of the Father, that's something that seems so foreign for us. Or just by talking about fathers, it brings up longing of wishing for things to be different. And when we talk about fathers, it makes us think of the doctor's appointment where we were told of the impossibility. And yet for the low, low price of $50,000, we might maybe have a 40% chance of someday being called father. Or the adoption agency that says wait times have never been longer, but here's some tips and tricks to make your profile look better. Like it's some sick game show to try to be the winning contestant to a birth mother or the Father that we so wish that we could call today. And even the best of fathers still let us down, still came up short, still weren't there when we needed them, still weren't able to provide what we wanted. It's so difficult for us to disentangle our experiences with fathers, with God the Father. And it may sound like I'm taking us back to that impossible question. How can we possibly relate to a God like this but I don't think I am, because I think those pictures, those longings, those dreams that we have for fathers here on this earth ultimately point us to the one true perfect father. Because think of, think of your memories, maybe even a core memory, or, or think of a dream that you had that you wish you could have experienced that the other kids seemed to get, but, but you missed out on maybe even a moment from your childhood, like riding a bike for the first time without training wheels. What is it that gives the motivation to start pedaling? Well, it's the encouragement of a parent, of a father who says, I'm here, I will protect you. Doesn't that point us to the perfect father who's always there, always able to protect, always loving and caring, even when the stakes are higher than bicycles? Or when we feel so sad and we want to turn to someone to get some sort of comfort, knowing that there's a father that we can call who's able to be with us in that pain, doesn't that point us to the perfect father who's always willing, always able, who's perfectly wise, who gives all counsel? Or the moments that we feel lost, we don't know what to do, we don't know the direction that we're supposed to take, even as an adult, knowing that there's a father that we can call to ask for advice or counsel from doesn't that point us to the perfect father who's always available that we can turn to for all things? Or when we have just great news that we want to share with someone, we can't contain it within ourselves knowing that there's a father that we can call who's going to be more excited about it than even we are. Doesn't that point us to the perfect father who delights in his children? that this holy, infinite, perfect God who's so massive, who's, who's uh, omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, he's, he's all-knowing, this God who's so different from us, he has revealed himself to us as a father. And that's what we see in our statement. It says, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself. This God we so desperately need that we are unable to draw near to him has instead revealed himself to us as a father to make us his people, to redeem us. We read from Hosea chapter 11 about God's love for Israel like a father. And yet it's through the calling out of another son from Egypt. Through the son, Jesus Christ, that we are redeemed as his people. That we are made, that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. This is Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 6. It says, and because you are sons, so sons and daughters, it means means both, but the son language is really particular here because sons were the only people who could inherit anything at the time. So I'm going to stick with the son language, know that it means sons and daughters. So you, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a slave, a slave to sin. No, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is who you are because you have a father like this. Think about what that says about your value. The perfect, infinite God has drawn near to you, revealed himself as a father, adopting you, as a child of God. Think about what that says about your purpose, that the the holy, infinite God who knows all things has set in place a direction with all guidance and care to do that. Think about what this says about how you are to live, that this perfect, infinite God has revealed himself to you so that we can grow more and more into his likeness. Think about what you might be able to face because you have a God like this, who's there to protect and guide you. That because of his son, because of this God who's revealed himself to us, we can cry out to him with all our hearts, Abba, Father. That is the picture of God that we're given. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so honored that we can use that name not as some title, but showing us how you relate to us with all care and guidance and correction, with all love and compassion and support. That you are this God who's so holy and infinite and perfect that on our own we could not possibly draw near to us, but you have not left us on our own. You've drawn near. You've been a father to us. So in all things, we turn to you. We seek your counsel and direction for all of life. We live our lives back in response to who you are because only you are God, only you are Father. So it's to you and you alone we pray.